Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Dr. Karen Williams, a psychiatrist based in Australia with an interest in PTSD and CPTSD, social justice and public health. Karen is the founder of Doctors Against Violence Towards Women, a group of 700 plus doctors from across Australia and New Zealand committed to combating domestic abuse against women in all of its forms. We speak with Karen today about her work, her organization's mission, and its advocacy to reform the healthcare system, including lobbying the government to provide better evidence-based support for the domestic violence sector, and coordinating with other advocacy groups in the child welfare, education, and or legal sectors. Welcome, Karen. Hi, Terry. Thank you for being on our show. I know that you're a busy woman and uh, doing a lot in in this advocacy around coercive control. So I just wanted to start with your background and how you became interested in working with women and survivors who are victims of coercive control? I didn't have any intention of going into advocacy at all. I was just like every other doctor, I suppose, going into medicine thinking that you know, I would treat sick people and ended up doing psychiatry for a term. And it wasn't a choice. I was put into that term was what we're meant to do, experience all the different specialties. And immediately I was confronted with how much abuse I was seeing within the inpatient wards, like there were just all the women were telling me these histories of, you know, either current domestic violence or past violence, sexual abuse, child abuse. It it was astounding to me. And I actually spoke to, you know, many of the doctors that I was working with and said, oh, you know, all of this mental health that we've got, they're actually all really abused women and children. And they said, oh, no, that's just coincidental. You know, it's got nothing to do with with their mental health presentation. And I thought that sounded very odd, but I trusted them. They were my supervisors and they had many more years experience than I ever did. And so I thought, okay, I I tried to accept that explanation that it was coincidence that all of these patients had histories of abuse in it, but it was a pattern that I continued to see over and over again. And it was, you know, a few years into it actually that I came across all these studies that was demonstrating that traumatic experiences like child abuse and domestic violence actually had demonstrable change on brain imaging scans and there was a physical injury but that you couldn't see this injury because it was on a microscopic level and it all made so much sense to me it all made sense as to why people were suffering this way and so there you know I started reading up a lot more on trauma and I ended up doing all my specialty training in that in the end. What I have subsequently ended up seeing was this real dichotomy with how we treat males with traumatic symptoms. And most of those patients are soldiers or police, paramedics, first responders. We provide so much care and we should provide that care to those people. But then a a woman is most likely to be traumatised by someone she loves. And in Australia, and I don't I'm fairly certain that's what the experience is over there as well, is that women that have been traumatised 
by a loved one has very little access to care. And in fact, more than no access to care, it's even a complete lack of acknowledgement. And in fact, it's an additional trauma of being told that you are now actually mentally ill for having a reaction to the things that have happened to you. And I see this as a grave injustice. And that's what pushed me into the, the work that I do now. So first of all, you're also the founder of this organization called Doctors Against Violence Towards Women, a group of 700 plus doctors from across New Zealand and Australia. This seems unique because I haven't, I was looking it up in in Google and we couldn't really find anything like that in the US or in other parts of the world. So Mm. is is it unique for doctors to care about domestic violence to be against? Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually think it is. It started off with, there was, you know, a few of us that would keep talking about how we manage how patients that have got these sort of histories in a world where we have no infrastructure to support them. We don't have a police system that that recognises violence, you know, appropriately and there's inconsistent support and inconsistent advice. And we see that in the family law court and the criminal law court. And so we would we'd talk about these injustices that we were seeing and, and I thought, you know, we we need to have a space where we can talk about this because we are actually very powerful people in that people do listen to us just by virtue of the fact that we do have these degrees. And, you know, I I don't think that's necessarily fair that just because you have a qualification that you should be listened to more, but that's the world we live in. And I thought, well, what? let us get together and recognise that this is a health issue and it is one of the biggest causes of mortality and morbidity for women, particularly young women, women under 45. It's the biggest cause of mortality and morbidity for that age group. Why are we not, as medical professionals, standing up and saying that this is the cause and we need to respond to it, just like we do with smoking and lung cancer and sun and skin cancer? We, we respond then. We, we get very active in public health campaigns and I haven't seen doctors getting involved enough on something that is a huge health issue for women. Well, so let me just ask, what is the gender breakdown of your members? Is it mainly women that care? Yes, that is absolutely true. And what we ended up doing was actually saying we only wanted to have female doctors in it anyway, because what we have found is, of course, that People that are interested have often had experiences themselves. And what we didn't want to have was discussions and arguments about whether it really was a gendered issue or not. We wanted people that were going to be in this organisation to be already at that point where we're at, where it is absolutely a gendered issue. And that is where our focus is going to be. We're not going to be sitting there arguing amongst ourselves about whether it is or isn't. You have to be already in that spot to join the group. Yeah, I mean, that's unfortunate because obviously, you know, I would say the majority of doctors are still men and we still, you know, there's some people who don't have the choice to choose a female doctor, maybe with lived mm-hmm. experience. And so, you know, that's similar to her own. And so it creates this, you know, bifurcation where a big part of the people who are service providers are not going to be educated and trained properly and Mm -hmm. actually don't buy into what it is that you're working on. Right. So it's just, I guess that's true in advocacy in general, (laughs) like with gender Mm. equality, you know, we need men to be part of it. And how Mm. many men actually call themselves feminist? At least there's more white people who are 
caring about racism and calling themselves anti-racist, but not so much, you know, on the gender front. Yes, it's like crickets, isn't it, when you start talking about violence towards women. Um, most of the time, you don't hear anything from men. They're really not interested, or they like to say that they're equally affected and women are just as bad as men. And we really wanted to avoid those kind of conversations because we really wanted to be constructive with what we do. You know, that, that anything that we talked about was things that were, was going to push us forward rather than sitting there and getting in, you know, entrenched in arguments that have really, there's too much evidence to, <laughs> to even bother going through those arguments anymore. Well, you know, when you were sharing your, I guess, indoctrination into um, <laughs> medicine and how so much of the psychiatric symptoms that were presented to you were actually functions, you know, of responses to trauma, to abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we've talked on the show a lot about the origin of ACEs, adver- Adverse Childhood Experiences, mm-hmm. and, the, mm-hmm. you know, Dr. Vincent Valetti. I'm just curious, is that study and the origin of that study, you know, where he first was studying obesity and then he realized, you know, that a big majority of the cases where women were not able to to keep the weight off was a function of their uh, unaddressed, unhealed trauma around childhood sexual abuse. Is that something that people in the medical profession are aware of, this mind-body-emotion connection? Because it's, you know, I mean, it's ACEs is now, I think, more mainstream, but I think that the origin of that study in and of itself should really point a lot of fingers towards, you know, what the work that you're doing. Oh, look, I mean, that study's old and <laughs> it keeps coming out as new on in the news all the time. It, was, it really hasn't had the uptake that I would have thought it should have had. And I think it's because it's so challenging to what we have traditionally accepted as medicine, which which lo- loves lists of symptoms and has a very black and white view of things, and especially in psychiatry, which, you know, if you think about the DSM, which was created almost exclusively by white males, they're just lists of symptoms, really, and they don't talk at all about where those symptoms are originated. And so women that are traumatised, yeah, sure, they fit into those lists of symptoms, but so does anybody under huge amounts of stress like that and that's it's their normal reactions to obscene levels of stress really and when we don't have that as p- part of the criteria so it doesn't say anywhere in it that you know you, you have to have experienced stress or that stress is a contributor it just looks like people have just suddenly developed a whole bunch of symptoms and it must be something within that person's genome or personality that has caused the person to have these these symptoms and Therefore, our treatments don't address the trauma at, at all. You know, and in, in Australia, treatments are very simplified, simple models like CBT, you know, that we don't do for, for people that are not able to pay. That's the kind of treatment they get. They don't really get the kind of psychotherapeutic, trauma-informed therapy that they really do need. And in fact, you know, we're sort of all of our psychologists and psychiatrists are coming out of universities with, without those skills which is a function of just not recognizing violence in women. And, you know, I've also heard the theory from other experts in the psychiatry field, you know, the cultural history is such that it is so gendered, you know, against women Mm. in uh, pathologizing sexism, right? And racism and all the other kinds of oppression Mm. that we Mm. as humans have come up with. And so that 
the, the, the theory was that all psychiatric symptoms were a function of trauma, you know, and that if we only dealt with, you know, trauma that came from racism or trauma that came from poverty or trauma that came from, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is, that those are all forms of violence. Physical violence mm-hmm. is a different category, but it's more like psychiatric spiritual violence. And that mm-hmm. that's the natural reaction is that people will present with wanting to seek numbing through addictive behaviors, through substance use, through self-harm, depression, et cetera, on and on. Does that resonate with you? It completely resonates with me. I don't agree that it's all mental health conditions. I think there are some definitely that organic in nature and you know, definitely that chemical imbalance, the neurodegenerative type conditions, but the vast majority the, the sort of run-of-the-mill stuff that uh, you know you're seeing regularly, day in, day out, GPs are getting them, general practitioners. What I would see more commonly in private, in my own private practice, would be people coming in with diagnoses of depression, anxiety, um, or or the one the worst diagnosis ever, borderline personality disorder, and then you talk to them for ten minutes and you actually show an interest in, in finding out about who they really are. It's not hard. And you, you will uncover that inevitably there will be histories of, of abuse. And when you have that conversation and you realize that, I'm guessing often they don't necessarily use that term. And so how do you address that? Do you name it? Do you refer them to a therapist? Do you ask them if they need additional services? You're right, almost always they don't recognize it as abuse and part of the reason for that is a lot of it is coercive control and that in Australia is currently legal behavior you're allowed to do those things and when whilst ever it's legal whilst ever we don't talk about it whilst ever we don't define those behaviors as being wrong or abusive or you know or even just giving it a name then people don't know what it is and and the strategies that are used are so manipulative and so you know, I know you know a lot about coercive control, but that all of those behaviors are designed to make her question herself, not him. And that means that's why they turn up to a psychiatrist because they truly believe they're mad, they, they're crazy, you know, or, or stupid, that they've been convinced that the problem lies with them. So they might be coming to me so that I can fix them so that they can be better partners, so they can stop causing problems within their relationships. So Yes, 100%. They will not see it in themselves. And then I will be talking to them and, and obviously uncover all of these things. And then I do definitely try to label it that with them. You have to be really careful. You have to be, it's, it's a survival thing to believe it's you, right? It's, it's actually easier to think that the problem lies with you within your character because then it gives you a sense of control. If there's something wrong with me and I fix myself, then I can get rid of this threat that's hanging over me at all times. That's a much easier way to, to frame things in your mind than to think you are living with a monster, isn't it? So when you are trying to break down that belief system with someone, you have to be really careful about not hurting them further in, the, in that process and making sure that they're ready for that journey and making sure that you allow them the time to process these changes of belief systems and because if you frighten these women away or if you make them recognize abuse too quickly to the point where they then don't want to come back to you if they haven't left him because they will think they're going to let you down 
you know, you're going to, you're going to laugh at them because they're still with him. And they, you, you made it very clear last time that, you know, that, that this person is abusive and I'm, I'm not leaving him. So I better not go back to that doctor. Um, so it's really very, very tricky about making sure you, you do things at a pace that's not damaging and you recognize how the uncovering these things is traumatic in and of itself. So what you're referring to is, I guess, trying to be sensitive to potentially their sense of shame, but, you know, to the extent that they don't have the means to leave, you know, as many women Mm -hmm. don't because of gender inequality, and it is a choice to have to stay. I mean, it's not really a choice to have to stay. It is a, you know, necessity to have to stay, you know, versus, I guess, homelessness and, and whatever other scenario that they're weighing in their minds. Are there opportunities or do you have conversations with them about the long-term safety plan of maybe you should, you know, go back to school, maybe help might want to get some training in X number of skills so that long, you know, later on you might want to get a job. I mean, do you talk about economic independence as a pathway to creating more options for them later? I talk about all aspects of it. So I try to address all of the issues that the systemic issues that face her, um, her trying to leave. So, that, you know, that would include the financial aspects, the, the lack of friends and family that he has usually cut her off from, you know, addressing the lack of social currency at all, being able, trying to help her also and understand that her, the fogginess that she feels and her, the inability to think, inability to sleep um, is part of the trauma response because she, he's often calling her stupid and crazy and dumb because she doesn't remember things or she can't speak properly. She can't think properly. These are real feelings and symptoms that she is actually experiencing because she's under such high levels of stress and she's in survival mode. So when he manipulates her stress levels to make her feel stupid, it's very hard for her to plan an escape. That's the thing with coercive control. All of those strategies are designed to not just physically keep her there by, you know, with money and that kind of thing, but also mentally destroy her ability to to plan anything for her own well-being. And those are the areas that I, you know, try to work on and helping her understand that she's not stupid. There's nothing wrong with your brain, but you are under such high level of stress you can't think. And even this conversation, you're going to lose, you know, probably 80% of what we talk about. So come again and let's talk about this. And it is so difficult the amount of areas of her life that the abuse will permeate it takes a long time to work through all of those how did you know you can say does he let you see your friends and if you phrase it like that she'll say yes sometimes you know yeah he does he doesn't stop me but then so you say well why don't you see your friends and it's like oh well you know they don't really like me and I'm not really good at having conversations with them and I don't think they're really good friends anyway and they're only you know, they don't even bite me because they feel obliged to because I'm embarrassing and I, I, I don't have anything to say anyway. So he has made her feel so bad that she will avoid her friends on her own accord sometimes because, or he'll have badmouthed them to such a degree that she doesn't trust them anymore. There's so many ways that you can isolate someone from their friends without directly saying you are not allowed to see them. So So, there are many women that think that it's their choices to cut people out of their life, not that they've actually been manipulated to do that. So I think that's really important to emphasize, which I think, you know, you're one of the few people who I've heard 
talking about it and trying to center this, reframe this narrative that coercive control isn't necessarily about what someone is doing to you actively, but what they are making you potentially do for yourself, thinking that it's your choice, that it's coming from a place of autonomy. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you, you say to a woman, you know, I, I love that you are not like other women and you have children because you want to be the parent. You want to love them. You, you have them for the right reasons. Your friends that work all the time, they, you know, they don't really value their, their families the way you do. You keep positively reinforcing staying at home, looking after the kids. You don't actually have to say you are not allowed a job because she will make that choice to stay at home with the kids because she wants to please him and and because when she pleases him, he is much nicer to her. He is scathing and and nasty about people that choose to go to work and he's in an angry mood if she talks about work. But if she stays at home and he and you know praises her for that, it is positive reinforcement, just like we you know with animals. And he is training her to do the things he likes. And he makes her adopt these belief systems. And remembering that if you're told over and over again that women that go to work, those that don't really value their children as much as women that stay at home, and then you are cut off from friends that could argue that out, cut off from watching, you know, television most of the time, you're not allowed to speak to your parents, you might say, you know, that's not what the case, that you are monopolised by someone and, and their viewpoint becomes yours. It's, all, it's brainwashing that happens. And sometimes it's really obvious like that. And and it's easier for someone on the outside to see, but sometimes it's really subtle. And what happens to a woman that is under that that level of stress is because she's trying so hard to keep him happy, she and she has such low self-esteem as well. And she's spending her entire life, her entire existence is about keeping him happy so he doesn't hurt her. She just spends her life in defense mode and everything is about choosing the things that will make him be kinder to her and the children, such that things like, you know, what do I want for dinner? They can't even make that decision because what they want for dinner is what their partner wants for dinner because that will keep the partner in a good mood and he will not be grumpy if he's got the steak and three veg that night, you know. She'll know him inside out. She'll know his favourite foods. She'll know his favourite activities. And she would would choose those things and say that that they're her choices because it will almost feel like it's her choice. Because the reward of him being in a good mood is so worth, you know, not getting attacked, you know, and that's part of the walking on eggshells things. It's not just avoiding the bad behavior. It's about trying to get him to be happy and be kind and, you know, preempting the behaviors that will make him happy and preempting the beha- behaviors that will make him angry. Well, you know, what you're describing, so some people might argue that many heterosexual relationships there's a level of how you would describe coercive control, but you know, what you're saying is more deliberate. It's more harmful. It's deliberately harmful. Whereas there might be men in a relationship who, who really do feel, you know, are traditional and have values and they, they do feel they, you know, and judge other women for working, but they really won't mind if their wife goes to work. They're just stating their opinion. It's not like this, you know, planting a seed to, to, manipulate her is there is there a difference or is anyone who's planting a seed inadvertently engaging in course of control because the outcome is such that the person will receive it that way I mean I think that it's a spectrum I mean it's not uncommon is it to try and convince your partner to adopt the way you think 
and say, no, I don't agree with you. You know, when you, you, you argue a point out, the difference in coercive control is it's about owning the other person and it is creating that sense of fear and it is not letting up until they take on your perspective and deliberately harming that person when they don't do what you want them to do. That's sort of different than just having a friendly argument about something or working through an issue together and maybe you might change your partner's mind but you're not doing that because you want to own your partner or control them and coercive control really is about having complete control over this individual and that they become like a piece of property they they're owned by by him and he believes he has every right to her to the way that she thinks, to who she spends time with, to what she does with her day-to-day life, you know, to the point where he can demand that she provides lists of all the things she's done each day. I went to the toilet at 3.05. I washed my hands at 3.06. You know, I, you know, that is a kind of level you can get to. It isn't sort of normal conversation. It's not about creating fear. And a coercive controllers that's often even things that are really trivial like it's dealing rules around things that are so minor that and normal people wouldn't want to want to have those kind of arguments or you know it's not like like talking about religion or (coughs) politics what kind of school your kids go to but it could be things like you know where the pots go and in what order and you know like I said writing lists of things are things that just don't make any sense to, to normal people. Yeah, people yeah. I, I recall in past relationships where one partner was very, would get really upset when I cut the vegetables in a certain way, you know, and didn't follow mm. the way he did it and it wasn't exact. And, you know, mm. if we were preparing for a party or things like that. And yeah, um, or like a lump in a mashed potato or something. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, what what about the issue of mental illness in men? Because, you know, there's a whole bunch of people and this narrative still persists, which is a myth, obviously, that, you know, men who abuse are mentally ill versus those of us who recognize that it's a choice. It comes from a mindset. We're not labeling white supremacists mentally ill. We're not labeling, mm-hmm. you know, Nazis mm-hmm. mentally ill, but some, for whatever reason, we're labeling men who harm women mentally ill. And then it gives them an out, especially those who are engaging later on in like public crimes, like mass murders, mass shootings. There's always this mental illness narrative. Well, oh, well, they just did it because they were ill and mm, nobody saw mm. the signs. Or we can you address the relationship between mental illness and men who abuse? I mean, the general population has mental illness in it. So you are going to get abusers that have mental illness, of course. And but the vast majority of abusers do not have mental illnesses. And in fact, the very fact that they're able to control their behaviours in every other aspect of their life, and often they are very, very successful people, they are the worst abusers that I've seen are the ones that have the most amount of power. You know, they've got high positions in jobs and they are very well respected. People like them to have an intellectual empathy and that they know what behaviours they can do to create a reaction out of the people around them. They they really do. They're very, very charming people. And so on a superficial level, like they can look very much like wonderful human beings and hold positions of trust. But then in, at home, they're completely different. 
And that's what's the most terrifying aspect for women who are in these relationships who are aware of the fact that the world around them loves their partner and thinks their partner's amazing, thinks they're so lucky to have a man like that. And often he has made her look kind of crazy to his friends. You know, she, she says, oh, I better go, you know, the missus has gone crazy. And um, sort of set this idea that there's something kind of wrong with her and then come home and be a completely different person. That's not mental illness. That's sociopathy. And they're very different things. But aren't, aren't sociopaths mentally ill? No. But they're not? No, oh, that is, so- that, that is, no. No, it is not. That is not a a mental illness. It is type of personality type where you where you don't have the empathic skills, the ability to feel things. And the reality of where sociopathy ha- originates is childhood trauma too. There's another really good reason to address abusive homes from you know the grassroots to to be stopping domestic violence is so important because we would actually reduce creating perpetrators as well. I mean, I, I think anybody who's like a crime aficionado like myself, like all the crime dramas, the narratives of all these perpetrators, these they've all experienced some sort of childhood trauma and then they become serial killers or mass murderers in some way in these crime shows. <laughs> and mm, mm, so it's not mm, like we don't know mm. and we can always yeah, even predict yeah. that what's going to happen. You look at the at jail population and you know, almost all of them have got histories of childhood abuse. What we do see sort of as a genetic, well, actually, I don't even really know if it is a genetic phenomenon, given that we live in such a patriarchal society, that men have experienced abuse as children do tend to end up with forensic history. So they're, you know, going to criminal behavior, they, they're externalizing anger, they express their anger outwardly to other people, whereas women that have experienced abuse as children will have an internalizing anger and they hurt themselves, they hate themselves. And there's a lot of self-harming behavior that happens for women that have been traumatized. And I don't know if we lived in a matriarchal society where women were more powerful, whether they would also end up that way as well. We'd never really tell that. But you do see so much childhood abuse within the mental health system and so much child abuse within in the forensic system as well. And if we really counted that when we do our calculations of how much does abuse cost society and you really looked at, you included jails and you included the mental health system, I think that the number would, it would balloon beyond comprehension. And by making out that women are all, you know, kind of crazy and hysterical and borderline, it sort of takes some responsibility off the government to actually address it, doesn't it? And society too, because many people like the narrative. You know, if you're in a position Mm. of privilege, if you're a white woman Mm -hmm. with proximity to white privilege, you might like it. And and so what comes to mind is I recently just finished, uh, I don't know if you get this in Australia, but there's a Netflix sort of um, dramatized version of a true true crime the first one was called dirty john season one i saw one and it was fantastic the first one but it okay. was like being at work yes um, yes and i don't need any more of that <laughs> okay well the first one actually i thought was great because the the perpetrators the first season you know was not 
um, he was not violent towards her at all until the end. And even at the end, he wasn't violent towards her. It was another family member, right? And it was just, mm-hmm. it went, you know, so the whole time it was just coercive control. Mm-hmm. But the mm-hmm. second season, what I just want to say is it's also based on a true story. The, st- the story of uh, Betty Broderick. And I never knew Betty Broderick's story. And I haven't really looked up the true biography because they kind of fictionalized some elements of this. Mm-hmm. But I just thought it was really apropos to our conversation because when I came away from watching the second season, I just thought this really pisses me off because what he did was a lot of what we discussed already make her basically it was crazy making through her subtlety, Mm. through his subtlety, Mm. through his charm. And even though people recognized her friends and family recognized that, they still stood by him. And over time, they, you know, drifted away from her, you know, and in mm. the end, she killed both of them, her ex-husband mm. and her ex-husband's new wife. And then her children basically blamed her. Uh, didn't see her as a victim at all. And, mm. and so it just was really sad because part of what made it confusing, you know, it's not a clear narrative for people who are not clear on course of control because she was a bit narcissistic. She was clearly very narcissistic in the sense that, her self-worth was so tied to her femininity and her role as a mother and being valued as a wife and a woman in society with status. And when he took that all away, it made her crazy. And there was no clear interpretation of that. You could stand on the side of the perpetrator here very easily from the way the show was done. So I just I just felt very sad because, you know, most people are not going to be able to identify these kinds of behaviors and patterns and, and probably support person who is being harmed, right? The victim. But this happens all the time in our family law courts. It happens all the time. I see it every day where they have been, you know, when you've got a traumatized mother and you put her on the stand and she, she's there being yelled at by male magistrates and lawyers and being asked why she is suddenly raising allegations of abuse and hasn't all the time before that and he presents perfectly and he's baffled by her craziness and he's like look she's been like this the whole time and he presents perfectly he's got his call right whereas she is absolutely traumatized she can't get her sentences together she's crying she's just they don't look at that and go this woman is really traumatized they look at that and go she's mad as the hatter those kids would be better off with him and it happens all the time. And, and they cripple women. I, and I'm not quite sure if they if they do it to the degree that they do here. But, you know, we've got women spending up to a million dollars on court costs, working every day to try and, and taking out loans, borrowing money from everybody to try and just protect their children. It, it's crazy making, isn't it? You, you, you kind of are raised in a society where you think that the law is going to work for you. You think that the family law court is going to hear these things. You're going to tell them what's happening to your children. You'll take your doctor's reports and you people are going to believe you because you're telling the truth. But that's not what happens. The truth doesn't win at yeah. all. And in fact, the, the women are told, do not report your the abuse because if you do, you know, you're going to get described as an, an, an alienator what is that? No, surely I need to tell the truth. You know, I have to tell them. I I can't let them go for visitation. 
So but the court system is just as coercive. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, because it's just as sexist. And so what is your organization doing to educate your medical professional peers and disabuse them of the notion of PAS, right? Because PAS is a form mm. of mm. post-separation course of control. Like making that accusation mm. in and of itself is a form of deflecting against your own contribution of abuse. And it's, it is a tactic. And, and yet mm. there is this cottage industry all across the world that we have mm. exported in the U.S., Uh, Right. To help people, mental health professionals make money, lawyers make money. People get continuing education credits for attending PAS Mm. classes, you know, in the U.S. Mm. by the Bar Association and mental health, you know, associations. And the world, I don't know if you know this, the World Health uh, Organization was considering actually outlawing PAS last year. And it was, um, yes, it was defeated, but it's the same thing as the father supremacist trying to add PAS to the DSM. You know, it's yes. getting defeated, mm. but they keep they keep doing it. So now they've okay, infiltrated trying. the WHO. What can we do to not get these doctors from signing on? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's a good point. I mean, within our organization, we are always talking about these sort of things, and I'm very clear about making sure that you're documenting people's symptoms as if you know if you're going to talk about people having anxiety or depression that you were describing where that comes from and why that's there and not really giving people illnesses as diagnoses like that like mental illnesses as diagnoses unless you're absolutely certain there's no trauma in that person's life at all and that no one ever finds that you know you don't get that kind of thing anyway so by putting you know as we keep saying do not write these things down and people with terrible family lives and things that are going on because it's not actually accurate you're not supposed to make these diagnoses when somebody's in extreme trauma you're actually not supposed to do that so when court report writers are saying i've uh, you know i interviewed the family and the woman has got borderline personality disorder you're actually doing the wrong thing because you cannot interview someone and make a personality disorder diagnosis on somebody in extreme stress you just can't do it it's it's actually wrong and these court report writers are like cowboys and they just write it anyway and the judges don't check and there doesn't seem to be any kind of regulating body in any country that I'm aware of I think this is happening everywhere that people can put up a sign and say I'm a you know family family report writer you can be a social worker you can be a psychologist you can be a psychiatrist it doesn't really matter and you can say whatever you want. And at the end of the day, though, you have to remember that these people are just as likely to be coerced and charmed by an abuser as she is. And he will he will charm him. And he, you know, there will be negotiations going on there as well. He's you know, he's playing the that report writer the whole time. Yeah. And then these reports come out which say she's got a borderline personality disorder. And, I, you know, that those women come to me, they're like, they told me I have a borderline personality disorder. And I'm like, how could they possibly come up with that? You, you can't do that to someone. There is no way to even address that injustice. There's no way that you can get hold of a copy of the reports even. She's got nowhere to get a second opinion because she's not allowed to take those reports anywhere or she's got no money left because she's already spent it all. Like, it's just phenomenal how we hamstring women in the family law court so yeah I'm trying to teach other doctors 
you know, about this so that they don't use it. Uh, I've only got influence really amongst other doctors and within the media I do try. I have talked to the, well, I'm actually even going to be talking to the New South Wales Law Society next week and we've talked to magistrates. But, you know, even when I have spoken to some of the judges in Australia, they treat you like as in they treat somebody who's coming to educate them on on something as if I'm a I'm some sort of criminal they do I got a sense of what it must be like to be a woman in that setting where there was this presumption that I'm trying to to lie you know and I'm making stuff up and I mustn't have the whole history and I said look I they were like you know you might have one bad story but you don't know all the other ones I was like no this is not one bad story I have multiple patients every week with stories like this, and it's the same pattern. What is your regulation for your court report writers? Well, isn't that your responsibility, doctor? You know, why haven't why haven't you guys made sure that the report writers are are regulated? And I said, well, we can't regulate something if you don't allow us to look at the reports. How can I regulate that? And if you are deciding to ask for an independent report writer to come in and, and make a decision on a family, shouldn't you be making sure that the person you, you've asked to, to review the family actually has the skills to do that? So we're sort of back and forth. Yeah, and I, I they, agree. They don't want to learn. They don't actually want to be told that their methods are actually deeply flawed and deeply gendered. Yeah, and I, I'm sorry to say this. This is definitely the case everywhere in the world. And in, in the U.S. here, we're trying to use data, or at least my organization is trying to use data to connect to accountability so that we can mm-hmm. generate patterns of gender bias that are being shown in the outcomes, the court decisions, and hopefully you know, use that to squeeze some change in policy the way the Black Lives Matter movement is trying to change immunity in police officers and remove qualified immunity. I think that, you know, all of these people who are working in family court, they all have immunity. And the fact that they do Mm. is a big impediment to Mm -hmm. their desire or willingness to change. So I think we need to, we need to work together on, on this Mm. all all over the world, Mm. which I agree. We do need to harness the energies that we do have as the people that are interested and can see. In the family law court, we have, I think we, it's idealistic. People want to believe desperately that there's an equality between you know, men and women. You know, it's a real, but you really want that to be the case. You want to think that violence is equal, that women are just as violent as men. It's, it sort of feels better, doesn't it, to think, well, no, 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 it's not that. It's only men that are like this. But our statistics are very clear on that. So when we're in a family law court, needs to be a recognition that you you don't get women murdering their husbands or setting their, them and their children on fire very often at all. And, you know, it's incredibly rare. The vast majority of the time it's going to be a male perpetrator. But the judges are sitting there behind their benches and want to eat, view the two of these people as equally likely to be hurting each other. And she's very likely to be, you know, lying. That's an equal possibility when that isn't a reflection of the society that we live in. And that's a really big problem because it's a refusal to see that women cannot be that coercive over, over men. They cannot create that level of fear. They cannot disable him the way he can to her because she doesn't have society's backing on making him stay at home. He will always be earning more money than her 
because male pay male jobs are, are paid more. So it always will be him that is to, that works while she stays at home with the children. So he will have that financial advantage. He will have the physical advantage right from the get-go without doing very much at all. And this lack of willingness to see that we still actually do have a huge bias between the two and, and, a, and a big power differential, it is hindering equality so much. And, and women are joining in on that. So a female magistrate is just as bad because she doesn't want to be saying it's every, you know, every man that comes in front of her, he doesn't, she doesn't want to say you're an abuser, you're an abuser, you're an abuser, because she's going to get the reputation of always favoring, you know, women and she's going to look like a crazy feminist. So she wants to keep showing that she's just like the male judges. She's no different and she judges everybody equally. And she's so hung up on doing that that she's just as bad, if not worse than male judges. Yes, that's certainly been my experience, <laughs> which is unfortunate. But that, that brings us to the close of our conversation, where we ask every guest a series of questions that we call the engendered questionnaire. The first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Oh, if we don't win, it's just going to stay exactly the way it is, isn't it? We're going to see, I, I don't know that. I will ever see equality in my lifetime. I truly don't think I will, unfortunately. I think we're going to continue to see, because that it's been so carefully done and we're all under coercive control and, I, and that there are so many women that have been aligning with, with men in order to, even the women that are in power have to align with, with men's values and the patriarchy, that I, I do think that we're never really going to get that equality that we so wish for and women's lives are always going to be, at least as long as I live, I think, worth less than men's. What gives you hope? I think I've been asked this question before and the more work I do in trauma and, the, and when I am able to talk to women about what has happened to them and help them see the trauma that they've gone through and how it's actually not, none of it is their fault and they are able to exist in a in a life where they are no longer blaming themselves and, and they get better and they don't need psychiatrists anymore. They don't need me anymore. And they, they say, I'm here. I didn't actually need this appointment, but I just wanted to tell you I'm going really well. And all I have done is take away all their medications and take away all their diagnoses and help them see that they've been hurt by someone and, and, and where to find the help or provide the help myself. Then, that gives me hope that I can, if I can't stop the violence, that I can at least help fix them <laughs> and allow them to, to, to live the life that they deserve. That really gives me a lot of hope. Final question. What can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? What we need to do more of is start educating young people as we have with teaching kids about mathematics and spelling and all those things that we think are so important, like algebra that you never use again, but teaching kids about what, what healthy relationships look like and what toxic, dangerous relationships look like. If little girls knew what these strategies that, you know, that coercive controllers use, the things like love bombing, the things like isolation, degradation, humiliation, things like separating 
you from, you, you know, your support network, if little girls knew right from the get-go that that behaviour is not okay and boys are taught, we know those tricks and if we see them, you'll get in trouble for them, you know, not, not what we've got now, which is you can do that as much as you like and no one's going to do anything to you, but that we can see it, we know it, and we'll, you will have a consequence for that. And we stop idealising the idea that finding a man is the ultimate end goal for women, having children is the ultimate end goal, and that relationships have to last forever. The Hollywood idea of finding true love and being with one person for an, forever and ever where we feel obliged to keep trying to make it work at all costs, the cost to our mental health, but be able to be happy standing on our own two feet and relationships should be part of that. You know, have a, have a great relationship, sure, but it doesn't mean that you, you have to have it, that it defines you. I think that those cultural norms need to stop. I think even marriage has to stop. The idea of wrapping women up and wrapping paper in a big bow and sending her down an aisle and giving her away to a man as a prize, you know, when he's had his last hurrah and he's all sad that he's, you know, and she's so grateful that she's, you know, a man's going to take her. I think even those ideas have to stop where we tie a person to somebody who might, who might not have her interests at heart. Let's be real. Most, most marriages do not end up like perfect life ending together when you know you die hand in hand in bed together that's not a reality and by doing that I think you know we're going to help a lot of people there's a lot of single people out there that feel very rejected that they don't fit into the dinner party dates because it's only couples that get invited and so many single men that I think I never found anyone that I loved but why can't we be happy living on our own or in communities you know with a bunch of women hanging out together and living together have to be a bit more broad about what what happiness looks like. I love that. Thank you so much. And as, actually, that's what I'm. Tr- I've been trying to build with my survivor community for so long. Is let's all, all live right. together. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and take yeah, right. care of one another. But thank you. I mean, so there much. are there are animals that do that. You know, yeah. there are actually animals that that live together where the females all live together and the men are off. You know, go, they go that's, off all by their own That's awesome. Yeah. I, yeah, mm. You'll have to tell me about them so we can look it up. And, and yeah, some primate and then the monkey kingdom there. Okay. Yeah, where the women all lived. I'll, I'll find the documentary for you. Okay. Me. Thank you. <laughs> well, it was a pleasure speaking with you, Karen. Uh, I wish you the best of luck in all of your advocacy work and continue to do well, what thank you're doing you so to much, uplift Terry. survivors. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.